Well, the next song that we are going to sing has been uh, re- written especially uh, for uh, this moment uh, where we find ourselves as a nation. It's been written by a chap called Andy Flanagan. It's called uh, Tears and Celebration. You should recognize the tune, so although the lyrics may be unfamiliar to many of us, you should be able to sing along uh, and learn a tune. Here we go. Today's Bible reading is taken from Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 to 
verses 1 to 8. And if you want to follow that in your Bibles, the church Bibles, that's page 1249. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. As we stand, let us pray. Father, remember those words at the coronation of our late Queen. As she was presented with the scriptures, she was reminded that they were the most precious gift that this world affords. And so we pray that you would open to us this morning uh, these lively oracles, this royal law, this key to freedom and your kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll do please be seated. Last week, uh, John took us to what, according to Billy Graham's testimony, was the Queen's favourite Bible passage in John chapter 5. And... As we meet today, of course, uh, we're very conscious uh, of what will be taking place, God willing, this time tomorrow. Uh, The Queen's funeral will be about to start. And uh, although we don't know what will be in the content uh, of that funeral service, uh, it's very likely that it will include the Bible passage uh, that we've had read for us, Bridget read for us just now. If you've got it, you might like to turn to it because we shall be digging into this part of this precious gift for ourselves. Uh, that Bible reading was included uh, in the funeral service for the Queen's father, the late King George VI, 
And uh, that order of service is available. And uh, tomorrow we shall find out whether this reading is included. It almost certainly will be. Uh, it's been included in the, uh, as one of the key readings for the services of commemoration uh, that the Church of England is encouraged uh, to be hosting uh, all across the nation today. And we, of course, will be running two services uh, later on, uh, our four o'clock service, uh, particularly for children and families, and then a 6.30 service, which will be quieter and more formal. But this uh, word of scripture uh, was, without doubt, uh, because we're told that the Queen knew and loved the Bible, Uh, For all Christians, this is a passage that is precious to us because it speaks so powerfully of our hope. It is one of those places that many of us will turn to, to find the strength we need when life is hard and the journey is difficult and the days are dark. Here uh, in glorious light is the promise of what God will one day bring in in the new heavens and the new earth. And our late Queen gave her first ever Easter message during the pandemic. She said this, as dark as death can be, particularly for those suffering with grief, light and life are greater. For her, as for all Christians, those are not just warm words because we want to hear something hopeful when things are difficult. They're rooted in Bible passages like this for Christians like our late Queen. Why will light and life triumph over death and darkness. What makes that not just wishful thinking? It's passages like this with the promise from God himself that all things one day will be made new. There is a new heaven and a new earth that is coming. And that means that this is a vision of hope, uh, not just to look out around the time of a funeral, uh, even a great national period of mourning, but a promise to depend upon in every season of life. Because it is a foundation for all of our lives. This is uh, as good a place to turn in God's word for a sure foundation for Bella's life. Though she is at the start of her journey. As it is for us who are somewhere in the middle. uh, Perhaps nearer the beginning or nearer the end. Or for those we remember who have gone home to be with the Lord. Here is God's word of promise for what the future holds for those who are in Jesus Christ. Uh, We're coming uh, to this passage of Revelation, uh, of course, uh, near the end of uh, this great last book of the Bible. But the book, uh, Revelation, begins with these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. That is John, uh, the author of uh, the fourth gospel, one of the disciples of the Lord Jesus, uh, and the one who wrote three other letters uh, to Christians in the New Testament. This John uh, was sent an angel by Jesus himself to unlock the future for us. Now, uh, that means that what we're looking at in this passage today uh, is not just wild imagination, it is revelation. It's not John's best guess at what the future will hold, but rather what the risen Jesus Christ tells him the future will hold. And that makes it the ground for sure and certain hope. It makes it the foundation uh, for putting your faith. Uh, This is not just imagination or wishful thinking. Uh, So Jesus uh, commissions the angel. The angel tells John. John writes it down, and we have it. And that means that just as it was for our late queen, 
as it is for all Christian people, so it can be for us. This is a foundation upon which we can build our lives, upon which this extraordinary hope we know will one day come to pass in our world, in all of reality, in our individual lives. So let's work through it together uh, with uh, confidence that what we're reading here is the promise of Jesus, of what our future will one day hold if we've entrusted our lives to him. I look at it under two uh, broad headings. Uh, All is new. Uh, This is the content of our hope in the first part of the passage. Uh, And then all is true. This is the trustworthy foundation upon which we may build together, which we teach our children, which we rely upon in every season of our lives. And so he begins uh, here. Um, There is a new heaven and a new earth. He sees this future unfold. Uh, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. But in what sense is the new heaven and the new earth completely new? Is it new in the sense, uh, those of you who have been in my study know that I love books and uh, I love nothing better in the post than getting a new book. Uh, And when a brand new book arrives, there's that wonderful smell of the book and you know you're the first person ever to have opened its pages. I love getting a new book and it's completely new. No one has ever opened it before that time when you open that first page Is the new heaven and the new earth new in the sense that it is completely new and it has never existed before? Or is it new in the sense that, as I remember back to when I was in my late teens and I'd worked hard at Tandy's to earn some money and with a bit of help from my parents, I bought a new car. But of course it wasn't new at all. It was a fairly aged Mark I Ford Fiesta. But how I loved it because it was my first car. It was new to me. It was a new experience for me, even though someone else had actually bought it when it was brand new. Is the new heaven and the new earth something like that? Uh, Precious, because it comes to us for the first time, but actually it's the old world renewed. The answer in the Bible uh, really is that we have to hold on to elements of both of those. The Apostle Peter says this, of what will happen in the future, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Everything will be destroyed. And in a sense that has to be true, because so much of our suffering is tied in to the reality of this world and the way it works. There has to be a total destruction, because this world is the place of death and mourning and crying and pain, and God will make everything new. Now that can't be the whole story, because if God makes everything new, and you and I are part of the old world, well, we're not going to be there, because it'll be brand new. So we also need to hear what the Apostle Paul says about that same future. Uh, He describes it like this, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That is the freedom that we can know today in Jesus Christ is one day going to be the freedom of the whole creation liberated from decay and suffering and death and tears and filled only and fully with the light and life of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself pointing to that day spoke of it as the renewal of all things. Nothing will be untouched. All of the old will be gone 
And yet it will be us who are renewed within that world. So other scriptures speak of our future in the resurrection age as being akin to the difference between the seed you plant and the tree that grows from it. The acorn, the oak tree, look nothing like each other. The one dies, the other comes to life. And yet, of course, it is the same entity. So it will be for us and for this world. Everything gone that destroyed and marred it. And yet renewal will come so that we will be there within it. It will be a different world. There's no longer any sea Uh, How to imagine a world without the sea, especially as an island nation. Uh, But the sea is not there because the sea in scripture stands for that which opposes God and his people and his purposes. Uh, God flooded the world, remember, as that first great judgment. It was the Red Sea uh, uh, that the uh, Israelites would have perished in or before unless the Lord had led them through that. In this book, it's the beast who comes from the sea. So there's no longer a place of rebellion and chaos. Nowhere for the darkness to hide because the sea is gone. That is the future. It will be, he says, a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. A more glorious day is there than a wedding day in our experience. We've seen pictures, haven't we, of uh, the Queen and the Duke on their wedding day and those uh, many uh, programs on the television reviewing uh, her life, the radiant young bride on her wedding day. Well, that's the image here for what is coming. You see, the Bible moves from a garden uh, where Adam and Eve were and all was well, from which they were banished because of sin, and it heads towards a city. And it's not a, I know some of you don't love cities. I love cities. I'm never happier or more relaxed than when I'm on the train to London, my favorite place in all the world. And I can finally escape all the grass and quietness and country air of this rural parish and go to the heart of things. Not all of you are like that, I know. Uh, Some of you relax more on the journey home to Hartford. Well, there we go. I'm a little bit strange. I've always loved cities. Well, whether we love cities or we really don't, It's not a city like even our great capital city, marvellous though it is, and nearly as grand and glorious as Sydney. But it's a garden city. It's a city where the tree of life is restored. Uh, Think of it as a city with, as it were, uh, an eternal Hyde Park at the centre and permeating every part uh, of the city. A city because it's the place where God gathers his people. And now there are more than two. Now there's a multitude that no one can gather. So it's the idyll of the country with the joy of a redeemed people gathered together around the throne and experiencing the rest and blessing of Jesus Christ. That's the picture here. And it's God's gift to us. It comes down out of heaven from him. And it's prepared, that is, we are prepared for, in Christ, we are the bride that has been prepared for Her husband, that is Jesus Christ. It's a picture of intimacy and fellowship and gathering, uh, relationships restored, harmony uh, for for all eternity. It's God's gift and the bride is beautifully dressed for her gift that she receives from God is one of forgiveness, one of a new righteousness, one of a peace with him that comes as the grandest of wedding gifts. And purchased at the greatest of costs. 
that of the death of the groom, the Lord Jesus himself. But now risen and reigning, he stands ready to welcome us on a day more glorious than any royal wedding day uh, as we come to be in his presence. In the previous chapter, we read this, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb, that is the husband, that is Jesus, the, lamb has come. the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. That is, we come to Jesus and we trust in him and we're clothed in his righteousness and we respond with lives of devotion to him. Lives filled with duty and sacrifice and humility and kindness and service, just as he has shown and granted to us. So we then reflect that as we prepare for this grand wedding day. And there will be on that day a new intimacy with God. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Isn't that an extraordinary promise? And it's been the purpose of God throughout his dealings with us in the scriptures. There were Adam and Eve dwelling with God in the garden. They turned from him, expelled from his presence. But from page three or chapter three of the Bible through to this point, the whole story is about God's gracious, settled, powerful intention to restore us back to this fellowship and intimacy with him. The center of Old Testament religion was God coming near in the tabernacle or temple and drawing his people to them, acceptable on the basis of the sacrifice that were offered. And as Old Testament religion crumbled and failed, so the prophets came and their message again and again, the heartbeat of all their messages was this, message from God, I will be their God and they will be my people. And then Jesus Christ comes, and what is the name he has given? But Emmanuel. And what does that mean? God with us. God has come to be with us. He has poured his Holy Spirit into us. And this day that is yet to come will bring to fruition all those promises and all our yearnings. Now the dwelling of God will be with us. He will live with us. We will be his people And God himself will be right with us. As close as we are to each other today, we shall see his face. His hands will be upon our faces to wipe the tears from our eyes. The old order of things will be gone. There are wonderful foretastes of this intimacy with God, the precious and powerful gift of the Holy Spirit to us when we come to Christ, experience particularly as we gather together under his word and praising his name. There are moments in our Christian lives, those of us who've been Christians for a few years, I'm sure will testify to this, when our faith seems so real. It just seems as though God is right there with us when worship is so powerful, prayers seem so quickly answered. Other seasons, uh, when it doesn't feel quite like that to us. Those foretastes will one day find their fulfillment in the new heaven and the new earth. In Christ, this is where we're going, to live with God and he with us. And then finally, then uh, John brings this vision, the old is gone. All is new. There will be no more death or mourning 
or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He was seated on the throne and said, I am making everything new. There will be no funerals in the new heaven and the new earth. No graveyards, because they will have been emptied on the day of the resurrection. There will be no hospitals either, no care homes. No need for any uh, of the ways in which we have to learn to live uh, from the moment our first youthful vigor passes with the reality that our bodies are decaying and that life beyond a certain point is only going to get worse. That's our experience in this world, isn't it? And yet here is a new heaven and a new earth where all of these things are gone. And the hope of that is precisely what sustains us when we're experiencing the worst elements of the old order of things. It all flows out of death. Uh, There are all the other parts of that are harbingers of it or corollaries of it. And why is the new heaven and the new earth uh, no place for these things? Well, because as the next chapter of Revelation tells us, there's no more curse. And so, therefore, because there's no sin against God, no curse to be born, therefore there will be no funerals or hospitals. Therefore there will only be life in all its fullness, everything made new. This is our Christian hope. This is our resurrection hope. And it is that hope that gives us the energy and the power to live our lives here as people of faith who give ourselves to the service of Christ knowing that one day all shall be well and we shall be at home in this new world. So let's turn to the other part of this passage. How do we know these things are true? Well, because we may trust God's word. It is a certain promise. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I know we live in an age where many are cynical. Cynicism is not new. Uh, It is, I think, one of the sad reflections, uh, and no uh, um, uh, uh, tribute to the Queen, of course, herself personally, who, uh, if anything, steadied uh, the relentless drop. But over the last 70 years, uh, we have seen an extraordinary turning away from Christian faith, uh, from commitment to church, and from the living out in the public square uh, of Christian values and norms. That's the reality in which we live, in which we're bringing up our children. If our children are Christians, they're probably going to be the only one in the classroom or the only one in their circle of friends. It's a different world to the world in which our Queen grew up in the 1920s and 30s. And so perhaps it's harder these days to put your trust as a more lonely voice in the Lord in the way that she did. But the way to put our trust in Christ It's exactly the same whether most people around us are Christians or most people aren't and are cynical and uh, frankly despising of us as we do so. Because this is the ground. Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. They're Jesus' words. And so whatever anybody else thinks, you can trust them. And because he knows the future, because he's risen from the dead and will one day return to bring in the future, his words are utterly trustworthy. So whether there be few of us or many of us, and across the whole world, uh, there are extraordinary numbers of us in a still growing Christian church. But don't be put off by the fact that in the West we are cynical and dying. This word is just as trustworthy and true as it ever was. 
and as we build our hope here on God's word, so this future will be ours and our encouragement will sustain us through all the days of our life. We look back on our Queen's life and we see this is what she did. Today, we're going to be praying that Bella would put her trust uh, in Christ and so that God willing, in a hundred years or ninety-something years' time, when it comes to give thanks for her life, this story can be told. Here was another who put her trust in the word of God and has now gone home to be with the Lord. How do we do this then? Well, the word is sure, the gift is free. I love this promise in verse 6. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. When Jesus says, it is done here, he's echoing what he said on the cross when he said, it is finished. That is the price that needed to be paid to get rid of our sin and all its consequences has been paid. It is done. The work is finished. All that is necessary to get you into the new heaven and the new earth has been achieved already. There's nothing you need to contribute. There's nothing you could add, even if you were minded uh, to do so. It is done. And it is done by the one who is the Alpha and the Omega. That is the one who created us and who will one day renew all things. And he says to us, will you admit your thirst? He says to us, will you admit your thirst. See, a glass of water is enormously appealing. If you've spent the afternoon in the heat wave out in the garden uh, going on a long walk, you didn't take a bottle of water with you, you come back in and there's a glass of fresh chilled water. There's nothing like it, is there, to satisfy your thirst at that point. But if you've just had your third cup of the tea of the morning, and somebody puts a glass of water in front of you, you're probably not going to be that attracted to it. How thirst is necessary in order to appreciate the water that is given to us. Well, so it is with Jesus Christ. If there is no thirst in us for forgiveness, no thirst in us for hope, for new life, no acknowledgement that without Christ and his forgiveness, we will be lost in the eternal future that is coming, well, then none of this will make any sense and we'll just be looking forward to going home. And I don't mean to heaven, I mean to where you live. But when we thirst, when we know something of our own sins and shortcomings, when we know something of the grief of this world and despair of finding hope anywhere else, well, when we thirst, then we're ready. And we come to the Lord Jesus and we admit our sin and powerlessness and he is there with that glass of water, a water of life, uh, and a water that comes without cost. All we must come and do is receive, trust him, put our lives in his hands, and turn to him for mercy and pardon. It's that simple. Can it really be that simple? Yes, it really can, and it is. So do you thirst? Then come and drink, and you will live. Well, all these things leave us uh, with present responsibilities. Uh, Jesus said to us, I have told you this, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus knew uh, that if we would put our trust in him, it would not make this life easier. 
Because uh, although we have a future hope that strengthens us for now, uh, our own sinful nature still fights against us, uh, and there are many who will cause us trouble. And there are many circumstances in our lives that will cause us difficulty. I've told you these things, Jesus said, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That is, he's gone to the cross, he's paid the price. It is finished, it is done, we may receive freely. But now just as he has blazed the trail for us, opened the gates for us, well now he calls us to overcome ourselves. That is to so trust in him that we will overcome our sins, that we will overcome those difficulties that come into our lives. Not that we will gain some marvelous victory that will lead to worldly pleasure and ease, but that we will discover him to be so faithful that there is no sin he cannot forgive, no trouble he cannot be trusted in, so that at the end of our days we will still say, Lord, I've trusted you to the end. And now, please, will you take me home? I will not give up or turn aside. At the beginning of this revelation, uh, Jesus brings a personal message to seven churches in uh, the region of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, In each one of them, he says uh, something like this, but with this same word overcome in all of them. This is key to what it means to follow Jesus today. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Friends, though the gift may be free, it has to be received. It has to be put into practice. We have to trust Christ all the way through our days. In the darkest of times, when we're most sorely tempted to go with the world, And turn our backs on Christ. No, he says to us, he who has overcome the world, so he now says to us on our journeys, he who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God and he will be my son. And we say we're not equal to the task. And he says, I know. That's why I've given you this word of promise. That's why I've given you my Holy Spirit. That's why I've given you each other in church communities so that you can encourage one another to keep going along the way. And when we stumble, so we come back and confess. He restores us again to that journey onto our lives end. And then finally, uh, alongside this, uh, often omitted uh, when this passage is read, Uh, Foolishly so in my view, uh, since if we want to build our lives on the foundation of God's word, we need to hear all of it. Uh, That which encourages us with gift, but also that which warns us of consequence. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. There is a hell to be shunned as well as a heaven to be gained. We really do need to thirst and come and drink, come to Christ and turn to him. And these are the consequences of plowing on in our own way, in our own lives, with ourselves as Lord and indulging uh, whatever it is that we seek uh, to please ourselves. As we look at these words, uh, though, we can see how out of place they would be in the new heaven and the new earth. Cowardly are those who didn't overcome. They just went with the crowd. 
the unbelieving, they never admitted their thirst and need of refreshment from Jesus. The vile, or what place? In the holy city. The murderer, how could one who seeks death have a place in the kingdom of life? The sexually immoral, how could one be a part of the true bride, chaste and pure, while indulging oneself sexually? The magic arts, uh, rather than trusting in God's word, trusting in horoscopes and uh, magic and other gods. Idolaters, those who cherish something or someone other than God, the liars. Or what fellowship can they have with the truth? It's not that these sins can't be forgiven. All of us here, if we're honest, have committed at least some and probably most of them. Now, the very point of the gospel is that we find forgiveness in Jesus. And when we stumble, we come back and find new forgiveness from him. We confess our sins today and every time we gather. This is those who can't be bothered to struggle, who cherish and don't confess. He say, I have no need of your God and his forgiveness. I'm fine on my own. Thank you very much. Well, this is the future for those who reject that offer of life in Jesus Christ. And, you know, the other reflection I had as I was preparing at that, at this message for this week is as we've reflected on a couple of godly women, that one known to all the world, our late queen, of course, but also one known only to us and precious, dear sister Helen Rickson, uh, who died recently. As I was reflecting on these two godly women, a little bit like John was doing at the start of the service uh, with that last chapter in Proverbs, I was reading this list and thinking, these women are the exact opposite at every one of these descriptions. How wonderfully that that testimony has been born, not in a drawing attention to themselves, look at me, aren't I righteous, but simply getting on with overcoming with believing, with pursuing purity and gentleness and humility and service. Not perfect people, but those who've been renewed by Jesus, who know their lives have been forgiven, and that this is their future, and therefore there is present strength to live in a way that reflects and glorifies Jesus until that day comes when he renews all things. I trust God's word. It really is the most precious thing that this world affords. It is the key to this future, a future in the new heavens and the new earth. It's our future if we put our trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for not leaving us with guesswork about what the future will hold. Rather, you've given us this sure and trustworthy word of a new heaven and a new earth. And we pray that this would comfort us, especially we who know what it is to be mourning, in pain, crying, as we long for the day when you will wipe every tear from our eyes. So we throw ourselves upon your mercy. Lord, we thirst. We confess. We trust you. And we pray that you might so forgive and accept us on the basis of the finished work of your cross, that this may be our future, and that you would strengthen us to live by faith, to overcome until we inherit it. These things we ask in your name. Amen.